I guarantee you a 14-year-old LeBron was playing way more basketball than playing on a stability ball with a dumbbell. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. Today's guest is Gray Cook. Gray is a renowned physical therapist, certified strength and conditioning coach, and kettlebell instructor. He's the founder of Functional Movement Systems and co-creator of the Functional Movement Screen. He's also the author of several books that I consider to be required reading for anyone in the strength and conditioning, fitness, or rehab world. If you are in those professions and you haven't read his books, get to Amazon and order them now. The first one is Athletic Body and Balance, and the second is Movement. Having Gray on hit home with me because when I was at the Buffet of Learning in the early stages of my professional career, Gray was one of the legends in the field who I soaked up as much insight from as I possibly could. Whether it be attending his courses or reading his books, I couldn't get enough. He has a way of understanding and teaching the nuances of human movement and performance that very few in the industry come close to. If you didn't get a chance to listen to part one with Gray Cook, get back there and listen. It's episode 98. He gives his secrets on how to train taller athletes, but also talks about why he feels like the incidence of low back pain is increasing with youth athletes and what we can do about it, why we might even be contributing to it. Here on part two, this episode, he gets into where he feels like the state of technology and athlete monitoring is the truth behind balance training and how to train balance better in athletes, the importance of nutrition in injury rehab, when and how to incorporate plyometrics with young athletes, and so much more. Before we get into the conversation, I want to shout out one of the recent reviews that was put up on Apple Podcasts. These help us so much. So if you haven't had a chance to hop onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review, please do. It helps us to grow the show and it gives Phil and I tons of fuel as we keep it going this one was from hsb12 attention basketball coaches they do a great job of interviewing guests from all levels of the game i pick up a coaching nugget of wisdom every episode the conversations always dive deep into the nuances of the game and life a must listen for all basketball coaches and fans hsb12 we sure appreciate you way to be basketball strong we'll keep it going from our end thank you now, let's get into part two with Gray Cook. You talked a little bit more with these taller athletes of, of training um, the hinge pattern, you know, first through a deadlift and then through a swing. And then also we talked about kind of bringing the legs into the equation or the, the, you know, connecting the lower body, as TD said, through the hips, the upper body with a with a dumbbell or kettlebell push press. But what about, again, the, the the kind of 13, 14, 15-year-old that's, you know, maybe just starting to to look at training off the court a little bit more that could not even squat to parallel maybe under control? Where, where might you start them and what kind of progressions or regressions might you use? And I'm not talking about, again, as you said, back with a view to heavy back squatting but just being able to do what you said earlier so you know um generate power through the hips uh through the hinge yes connect the the upper and lower body yes but also be able to at least do a reasonable uh body weight squat and and everything that has to say about knee function and some of those things we just mentioned 
Well, uh, a lot of your listeners are going to curse me for what I'm about to say and do, but I had a uh, an abnormally tall soccer team I was working with, and I would apply the exact same thing to a, a group of basketball players that are experiencing that, that deep squat limitation. I could easily assign you to go home and do stretches that will reveal your deep squat to you. But what we would do is literally take the teams outside, and I've done this with football, basketball, and soccer. They can't, as a group, they're not good deep squatters. All I do is find a grass hill, and most people who can't deep squat get that little heel lift advantage on a grass hill, and they can rock bottom their squat. So we start squatting on the hill. Now, mm. we can do a few things. If you, if you roll back to your butt and then your back, you can actually do a sit-up land on your feet, pop tall, squat back down, roll back. So I'm getting a sit-up slash crunch, <laughs> rock bottom squat to vertical leap, back into my squat hole and back in again. And early in the season, I use these as my conditioning drills because they sort of impose the same physical load as burpees, only on the backside, right? Mm. I'm uh, rolling up and, and popping tall from the squat. Now, we also do bear crawls up the hill, but we never face down the hill. So we bear crawl up the hill, butt down, sort of look like Spider-Man scaling a building, and we back back down the hill using that knee almost coming all the way up into your armpits. We're really reaching out with our legs and arms and really wow. laying out your body. So the bear crawl activates the core. The deep squat basically makes you use your hip. So we're giving a constructive ping to the core and we're giving a relaxation ping to the hips and legs because it's usually most of these kids show up with a sloppy core and toned up legs and if you run them enough you're going to have one of two things happen shin splints and low back pain so the way to avoid that in that first two weeks or whatever is we give everybody the feeling of what a deep squat feels like. So we go find a hill, we squat down, we do our little sit-up jump thing, and we do some bear crawls. And in two weeks, you'll still have a few people that are struggling with the squat. But now we know who needs the medicine and who just needed the meal, right? And, and so some of the kids that are going to still have that deep squat problem are probably going to be kids that have had previous injuries. There could be a mild scoliosis. There's a reason for it. We'll give you a little extra supplemental work. You'll be there too. But for the most part, we can take all that bad movement pattern off two-thirds of the team just by realizing that there's more cardio out there than wind sprints. And wind sprints are going to get us injured right now because these kids, they're not balanced. They, they're not going to be able to handle the cardio load. But mm. you put them squatting and bear crawling on a hill, I'm going to get all the cardiac output you'd ever hope to get on wind sprints with zero bad mechanics. They're not going to learn anything bad and they're not going to learn it at the speed of competition yet because they don't deserve to be in competition yet. So that's, that's the owning that deep squat and being able to squat weight in the weight room are two different things for me. One is a authentic signature that your core and your hips are working together. One just tells me how strong you are if your core and hips are working together. Love that. And that's, that's the key is getting those in symphony. Great. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, when I was coming up through and in my, during my six seasons in the NBA with the Lakers was sort of the boom of this um, 
sports science and using athlete monitoring or devices, wearables and monitor, um, you know, video-based motion analysis to say we're doing this at this new technology level and we're getting such deeper information. It was always to be very straightforward. It was always very frustrating for me because I was just beginning to hone my eye as a clinician of, you know, I, I can, I feel like I could see a good amount of what I need to see when I have that person do a split squat in line, or I have this person do an overhead squat, or I have this person do a, a one leg step over and, and that kind of thing. And then it was sort of this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Now we see stuff coming out more recently where some of these camera systems were, have such huge uh, rates of error of what they said they were telling you versus what they're actually telling you. And just talk a little bit about that because the assessment piece, I think gets overcomplicated, not only with technology, but also just with complexity that we want to put into an assessment. No, I, I, I really appreciate you saying that because tech's not bad. But a myopic view of a human life is bad. And very often we we point our tech at one body part and we go, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep and we're not even on the problem anymore, but we're we're very comfortable. So, you know, I I hate to say this, but but research likes likes the sound of their own voice. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh what is it? The, uh, the, the streetlight, um, sort of confirmation bias. It's like, you know, you got a guy on his hands and knees under a streetlight and why are you down on the ground? He's I'm looking for my car keys. He said, did you drop them right here? No, I dropped them over there, but the light's better right here. <laughs> Meaning I'm more comfortable here. I know the problem's not here, but I'm just way more comfortable. Right. You know, so we do, we get into that. Let me, I have a much better argument for this than I ever did before. Just like yourself, I had a glimpse that we're missing something fundamental Mm. and Mr. Miyagi didn't need force plates or the coach's eye or bioelectric Mm. sensors to tell that Daniel son didn't have balance. You put him on the front of the boat, (laughs) he's in the water. He's got bad balance. He's not in the water. He's got good balance. (laughs) That's the the lesson. I get that. So, so I do, I see all these devices, but we're sitting here. Right now in modern times, and, and my, one of my partners in crime, Dr. Kyle Kiesel, uh, who's been one of the major researchers and implementers of the movement screen in, in both military and athletics, and has worked with quite a few of our professional teams, um, has gone through the literature, not just the literature about FMS, but a bunch of other things. And right now, there's like 16 risk factors that really do add to the burden of your next musculoskeletal injury. Mm. Now, some environments, everybody's going to get injured. Take the NFL, take the firefighter academy. But here's what we noticed in uh, three successive firefighter academies that we did. People who go into the academy with lower movement screens, that means poor fundamental movement, might have the same amount of injuries as everybody else in this class, but they will command significantly greater resources just to finish than those who had good movement screens. That means when we're going to beat on you, like we often do during a competitive season or stuff, you're going to have problems. But the people who don't have compounding problems or multiple risk factors seem to fare better even if they do get injured. So the extent of your time loss 
as well as your potential injury can both be managed on the front end. Now, let me go over some of the risk factors. BMI. If, if, if you're overweight for your uh, frame, all right, it probably, in, in youth, it probably means a little bit of a toxic lifestyle. Uh, uh, poor nutrition, poor sleep, uh, poor breathing patterns, all these can add cortisol to the system and make you just sort of create this uh, buffer. And one of the reasons the body puts extra weight on is to buffer the insulin load of all the inappropriate foods that we eat. So number one, BMI is a contributing factor. And it doesn't mean that BMI from a biomechanical standpoint is going to cause injury. It just means if you're not at your ideal weight, there's probably a toxic environment somewhere between your sleep and nutrition. That's all that means. Right. Number two, pain with any movement. If, if moving within the own, your own human dimensions, not in extreme ranges of motion, but squatting, lunging, turning, twisting, if that hurts, you're, you're at risk because the pain itself is causing a compensatory behavior. Mm. Now we go through and say, what are the, what's one of the things we can't remove? Previous injury is a risk factor because not because you're permanently altered from every injury that you have, but how many people responsibly fully recover from their last injury or do they even know? Probably not. Okay. So we've got BMI pain and past injury. Now we start looking at these risk factors and we see stuff like grip strength, people with lower than average grip strength, also seem to be at greater risk. And we don't say that people should be going around squeezing a gripper or squeezing a ball. What we know is the signature of your grip is sort of a good proxy for overall body strength. We can't deadlift everybody or vertical leap everybody, but we start seeing really weak, age-appropriate, and gender-appropriate grip strength. You got There's an underlying problem because I'm thinking inhibition, not weakness. You know, mm. I'm thinking... This person, this person has not been handling a lot of loads, and there's probably a reason for it. But we get to this list of, of risk factors, poor cardiovascular fitness, your perceived recovery from your last. The two that don't go away are balance and movement. And if you've mm-hmm. got multiple asymmetries on the FMS, or if you flunk your Y balance test, either not covering the mark or not being symmetrical in your covering of the mark, you're at risk. So when I go back and look at all these risk factors, I can't change your BMI today. I might not even be able to find out why you hurt today, but I can pull you out and get, get you into an environment where you figure that out. I can't get rid of your past medical history or your last injury. I can't do anything about your grip strength today, right? I can't do anything about your confidence or your perceived recovery from your last injury. But in about five minutes, I can change your state of readiness in either balance or movement just by going through one of the little katas that gets you moving better. Now, getting you ready in the moment is way different than working on your wrist for tomorrow. So within those boundaries that you have, I can do some things to at least make you a slightly better version of yourself if I engineer my warm-up at the two things we can modulate today, which is your balance and your motor patterns or your movement patterns. And so Of the 16 risk factors that that we're currently looking at, and this isn't us, this is a full lit review, round the world, risk factors for musculoskeletal injury, Mm. there are five data points posted 
by the Y balance test and four data points posted by the functional movement screen. So to answer your question in the longest form possible, all that tech that you and I have had shoved under our noses with the yeah. sensors and the cameras and stuff like that, they're, they're, not in the, they're not even at the table because these are ancillary little things that obviously we can track, but they're, they're how can I say, very, very um, myopic in their approach. We're right. looking at these global risk factors. And so, right. yeah, I, every player in the NBA, I think, is wearing an aura ring right now. Right. And having your, right, having your uh, um, heart rate variability in your sleep tells me a lot because in the military, guess what? When we see guys who are sleep deprived and dehydrated, they drop like three to four points on their movement screen and balance test. Yeah. Well, if I didn't know they were sleep deprived and dehydrated, I'd be assigning them a freaking corrective exercise. They don't need a corrective exercise. They need a few more REM cycles. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and a little right. bit of sodium and magnesium in their system. So it's really easy to find exactly what we're looking for. And tech makes us not see humans anymore. It makes us see numbers. Yeah. And I hate to say this, but if you want a cautionary tale about playing the numbers, we had a thing that we started looking at probably almost 40, 50 years ago called metabolic syndrome, right? It's the risk factors for a cardiovascular incident, triglycerides, yep. cholesterol, BP, uh, BMI, um, and uh, blood sugar, right? This is metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And I think three out of the five means these are going to be compounding issues. How do we handle metabolic syndrome? We give you a medicine for your BP. We give you a medicine for your cholesterol, right. your triglycerides. We tell you to eat right and exercise. So we medicated everything and then gave you general advice. Yeah. And we've got more metabolic syndrome now than we did when then we ever. recognized the cluster bomb, right? Well, we've seen the same thing with, with musculoskeletal. What are most people going to tell you to do if you're having metabolic problems? And I'm going off tangent, but I'm coming back around to it. No matter what, we never look at the whole. We always like to try to jigger the numbers that said something's wrong without trying to change the state of what was wrong. The numbers are simply for precision, accuracy, baseline, rate of change. But if we're not changing the signature of you, your, the things that you control automatically, like your movement patterns and your balance and your heart rate variability and your you know, cycles of rest, recovery, and stress, if, you, if those are broken, it doesn't matter how good you make the numbers, the full expression of this person isn't going to be anywhere near potential. So I want the tech and I use the tech, but I never let the tactic overlay the strategy. The, the, the strategy is we're going to try to reduce as many movement-based risk factors as we can so you will fit this environment and, and you will grow to fit this environment as we do it. But what we know is when you have multiple risk factors, you don't just risk higher incidence of injury. You also lowered your adaptability mm. because kinetically speaking, you got wax in your ears and you're wearing sunglasses, right? You, right. You're not experiencing the basketball that the guy next to you is experiencing or the girl next to you is experiencing because their sensory awareness, their mobility, their stability, their balance, their left-right symmetry, their reaction time is optimized for this environment. So they're going to learn more in the same 38-minute practice as somebody who has to work around a stiff ankle 
and can't turn to the right. So good. Talk so a little whether bit about we're yeah, removing risk. Yeah, whether we're removing risk or increasing your adaptability, it's two sides of the same coin. I right. like to talk about the positive. We're going right. to increase the opportunities in this practice. So, so good, so good. Talk, just explain briefly what the Y balance test is, what it looks like to do it. And then I'd love to hear kind of your take on what balance actually is or a limitation in balance for somebody is telling us. And then how, what many people think is LeBron gets on a physio ball and holds a kettlebell in one hand and curls on the other hand. And then that's great on Instagram. That's great balance training. But what is it for you? Right, right. Well, we all know that LeBron didn't do that to get there, but now right. that he's there, he can do anything he wants. So you, I guarantee you a 14-year-old LeBron was playing way more basketball than playing on a stability ball with a dumbbell. So, you know, once... Totally. <laughs> yeah, once, once you have your, your, your own sportswear, you can pretty much say and do anything you want, and you'll get away <laughs> with it. But that was, that was not in his development path, and most right. of the people trying to pose that exercise are not him. They're developing to be him. And that's not what he did to get there. So, um, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's really, I guess the, the, the state of thing We're we're going to see stuff that, that, that looks like function. And then we're going to see stuff yeah. that really yeah, is, is function. Like you said, we think, okay, balance problem, have them do balance stuff until the balance gets better. When I think of that, I think of, okay, we slap them on an Airx pad, a balance pad, or we put them on a BOSU ball, we toss them some tennis balls, or we have them close their eyes, that kind of stuff. But what is, what do you think of when you see that, when you say, okay, we need a, we need something to address. We're going to put this into the drinking water for this person. And this is how I'm going to train balance. Gotcha. Um, now, I, I, I came through a lot of the same educational paths you did. You see bad balance, yeah. you sling an Airx pad under their right. foot. And then I started thinking to myself, this person had shitty balance on a stable surface. Right, <laughs> right. That's, that's an unstable surface. So it's actually, I mean, if we, it, a kid that's having a reading disability, that's almost like saying read harder, longer words faster. Right. <laughs> that's not gonna, making the shit harder ain't going to make it better. It's just going to make it totally. harder. To compensate. So, so what I look at is, yes, there's a lot of different little tricks we could do to juice your balance, but what's wrong with a balance beam and a bear crawl? I'll make, mm. I'll, I'll have different size balance beams. I use the um, synthetic decking that uh, a lot of people yeah. build their back decks out of now because you can't get a splinter and I can have them ripped down to four inches, six inches, eight inches, but I have an athlete you know, they don't need to be on a balance being four foot off the ground. This is not gymnastics. This is sure. get your feet under your base. So we walk the beam and then we walk backward on the beam. And the kids who can walk forward and backward on the beam without looking down at their feet, we start throwing stuff at them and they yep. catch and they throw it back. I shouldn't be breaking your balance rhythm to throw and catch things. Okay. So we challenge their balance on a beam and the beam is making them feel their feet, not just bang their feet around on the ground. They're actually having to feel their feet. So this may be the one time during practice. I'm like, everybody get your shoes off, get on the board. Uh, I need you to get a partner. Y'all are going to be walking on the beam, bounce pass, do whatever. But the basketball is always involved. I just got a bunch of these little balance beams out and walking on a piece of tape ain't the same thing. 
because you can't feel the tape with your feet, but you know when you're on the edge of the beam. So that's, that's ah. sort of important to me. The other beam that I like is, have you seen those little um, 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 four-foot-long things that go over top of a drop cord? They're beveled on uh, each side and have a little flat edge on the top. They intersect together. You yes. cover drop cords with them. I, I use those as balance beams, too. Anything will work. But what does it do? It gets their feet to the center, just like a half kneeling, and it makes them use their balance on autopilot so they can do a higher end skill. So I get the ball is, is um, you know, involved as quick as possible, even if they're just dribbling in, in one hand. Uh, right. Bear crawls look like punishment, but bear crawls <laughs> on a beam juice the core better than anything else. So you don't have to do a lot of bear crawls. The last thing you want to do is hurt somebody's wrist or shoulder. Right. But we do just enough bear crawls to ping the core and we do just enough balance beams to see everybody getting better posture on the beam in a matter of minutes, just doing these things, it dials in their balance. And so it's a, it's a forced use paradigm, meaning I'm not going to tell you to balance better. I'm going to give you a reason to balance better and your athleticism and competitive spirit is going to look around at other people balancing pretty good. And you're going to rise to the occasion. You're going to take this serious. And, and so when we do those challenges like that, it, it actually, it's, they're going to have a little horseplay anyway. They're going to have a little fun anyway. I'm going to stress the balance system and the warm up to do it. So instead of them knowing they're doing balance exercises, I'm just making their dribbling and passing drills harder by putting them on a beam. And the bear crawl is taking the place of a lot of unnecessary wind sprints. Right. And that seems, right. To, that seems to fix it. That means two weeks from now, I'm posting better balance measures and nobody, nobody knows they've been doing balancing exercises yet. Now, oh, if, if they, if they, over, yeah, if they overcome those really quick, we're on into jump rope and single leg jump rope, right? Turning that rope, doing sets of, uh, you know, 30 seconds, trying to go, you know, five and five. And we're just, then we go ballistic and really start stressing that single leg. But the balance beam and the bear crawl have been our go-to for really uh, fixing or, or locking in your balance. So if they warmed up on their worst pattern, whichever, what, whatever it may be, T-spine, mobility, hip, ankle, and then they all do balance beams and bear crawls as a group, you see their movement screen score coming up and their balance scores coming up, and we're not really doing individual correctives yet. Right, right. That's, uh, I love that. Talk to me a little bit, Gray, about how in the game of basketball, you have certain areas that are load-bearing more than others, and, and the types of loads that they have to bear because of the game are just unique as a, versus any other sport. And so you have these areas that I look at that have sort of come to the surface of my experience in the game as problem areas or areas of breakdown in chronic ways. So you have plantar fascia, you have the uh, Achilles tendon, you have the quadricep tendon, you have patellar tendon stuff. You have those areas where a lot of basketball players have these cranky knees. They get the Achilles tendinopathy or tendinitis and plantar fasciitis, those types of things. How do you look at those from a really drilled down micro or isolated area level? And how do we, how do we, how do you look at preparing those areas? Okay. Um, when, when I have the young athlete that does have some of these problems that don't resolve quickly, they wind up yeah. in, in, and I guess our lingo going a little chronic, right? More than the two or three week window that 
we allow yeah. the inflammatory process, right? Well, what nobody considers is we've got two things probably going on. Number one, the kid's probably in a slightly inflammatory lifestyle. What's mm-hmm. that look like? High amounts of sugar, high refined carbs, and huge loads of dairy. And I'm not trying to be a nutritionist here. I'm just saying a growing body needs clean sources of fat and protein to really maximize collagen. Sure. Secondly, kids don't, can't lean on their fascial system because it takes about eight months to model your fascial system. And a lot of people don't know this, but about 80% of each muscle attaches into the tendon that it used to move a bone. The other 20% of that muscle, those fibers actually go weave right into the big old body sock that sort of holds you together, that gives you that muscle memory that most of us don't develop till we're on the other side of 18. Yeah. So I usually see kids with chronic problems getting less than optimal sleep, being less than hydrated. And what I mean by that is not drinking enough water. It's having a good balance of electrolytes in their system right? Most mm. kids got way more sodium than they do potassium, magnesium, right? And, and sports drinks are starting to address that, but then most of them got a sugar load. So they give you hydration, but then they give you an insulin spike and you'd be better off being dehydrated than partially hydrated with an insulin spike. So the first right. thing I say is this, get some protein in you in the morning and do me a favor. I don't care how many carbs you think you need for breakfast. I need three hard boiled eggs first. Yeah. Or two hard-boiled eggs. Or, you know, don't do the whey shake if you don't have to. Just go back to eggs. I know what's in that. I don't know what's in the next thing you're going to tear open. And right. all you do is start upgrading the level of collagen. I tell, I tell mom, hey, get some bone broth in their diet. As a snack, get them two cups of bone broth. And then if they're still hungry, then they can have a bag of chips. But I try to do stuff that's going to really give their collagen no reason to be cranky or inflamed. Yeah. So sleep and nutrition are the first two things I do. And then I'm like, all right, this kid is actually competing and playing above the level where they could adapt, meaning they're just barely mm. hanging on. So their physical load each day, it's like they're playing, they're at basketball practice with a backpack on and everybody wow. else doesn't have one. And it's because their, their movement patterns are inefficient. So they're going to fatigue early. What happens when we're fatigued? Injury rates go up. This is the kid who needs an injury less than anybody because it's going to take them out for the season. They're not going to come back fast. They're not going to come back strong. They were broken going in, you know, and, and they just weren't symptomatic yet, but they were showing us all the, all the signs of risk. So the two things that I usually find when people have a, a chronic problem that should normally resolve in others is they've been using Band-Aids. They've had plantar fasciitis for five months, but they're on their fifth pair of shoes and seventh pair of orthotics, right? Right, right. The, the answer, yeah, the, the answer's not there. If you've got somebody with plantar fasciitis, ankle or knee problems, and they can't get in a full deep squat, then if you start going for the squat, you're going to light them up. What yeah. I usually do is I go for the single leg deadlift. Meaning Mm -hmm. I don't think their knees, ankles, and feet would be beat to hell if their glutes and their pelvis and their low back knew where each other were. So since it hurts to bend ankles, you know, and feet and knees with tendonitis and plantar fasciitis, a single leg deadlift 
doesn't really require us to do anything but stabilize there. And learning to stabilize there, as we talked before, sometimes a lack of mobility is just a signature of overuse and the lack of consistency stability. So with, with all these female athletes during a growth spurt will get just as much knee pain as a male athlete. Anything that makes them bend that knee is going to hurt them, but you don't have to bend your knee that much in a single leg deadlift, but right. man, they sure look wobbly. But over two weeks, they figure out where their glute is and they learn how to balance. So I'm fixing their balance while I'm strengthening the glute. Now, if I want to do more of a functional 3D training, I have them stand on the left leg and pull the weight in the right hand. If I want to basically not throw a huge balance load at them and just get them toned up and strong, I let them have an equal load in each hand. It's actually easier to, to split the weight and put it in each hand and sure. then go cross body. Yes. So you go from more of just a glute isolation strengthening hip hinge into this 3D functional going for symmetry the whole time, usually after about two weeks of single leg deadlift training. And by the way, this is rehab because they're already hurting. So I do it every day right. because it's more about getting the motor pattern than the said principle here. Um, I'm, I'm not thinking tissues changing, but I'm teaching you through these sets and reps how to just own that, that single leg base. And after about uh, two weeks of single leg deadlifting, they're ready to start rehabilitating that squat, that lunge, that everything. The cool thing is the same group of people that I just said do single leg deadlifts, they can be on the balance beam and bear crawls all day long. And so what you'll realize is preseason for everybody is going to start looking more like that because you know what's getting ready to happen. They, right. they haven't been doing what they were supposed to do in the off season. They're all going to come to us except for a select few somewhat deconditioned. I actually think the wave of the future is issuing your team an app that allows them to explore the exercises on their own. And at the first gathering of the team, the ones who've been doing what they were supposed to on the app are going to get rewarded. The ones who wow. didn't do it aren't going to get punished. The ones who did it are going to get rewarded. And all of a sudden you're changing culture and you're using an app to do it. And, wow. and we're, we're trying to aim our directions right there too, because kids they're used to getting their information from their device. So if yeah. they want to see the movement patterns we want them to own in the preseason, here they are, and here's how you get them. How cool if any is of that? this hurts, tell your parents. Yeah, right. why, why not? I mean, we can we can do that. Right. Um, I, I I actually tested that in the NFL when when you know the first part of COVID when it was locked out, and I was in conversations with three different teams saying if we could just know which rookies coming in had ankle mobility problems and which ones didn't. We could actually get them doing proactive stuff remotely right now. We'll send them a foam roll, you know, we'll do yeah. whatever. And sure enough, we designed a self-test that at least compartmentalized that. Now, we were getting a lot of other stuff too, but all we were doing was splitting the room between people who owned their squat and who didn't and issuing, um, you know, remedies to the ones that couldn't in a proactive manner. So four weeks from now, half the work is done and oh. all of the explanation has been ingested. So, you know. So, so good. I, 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 I got to go back because there's something really critical of what you talked about there is when people think balanced training, they're not usually thinking one leg RDL where, whereas, as you pointed out, if we get that glute 
fired and that glute meat and all that good stuff that happens in a one leg RDL pattern. Well, that's balanced training at its finest. And we're repeating, repeating, repeating until we build that tolerance in the neuromuscular aspect of what it brings you. And then we worry about loading later. But the other cool thing that was, I, I wrote down a couple of words as I tried to kind of summarize how you took me through, took us through this. When I asked you, how do you deal with these isolated areas of maybe chronic breakdown or, or problem areas for a basketball player. You talked about the first, the root, the word I wrote down was the root of the problem. We're, we're really getting to the root when we talk about, well, what is the nutrition and the, and are we feeding the collagen from a nutrition standpoint? Are we letting it be in a not chronically inflamed state of, of lack of sleep and all this, this stuff put together? Then you go global away from the site of the area. We talk about this one leg RDL. And then I think of what you then looped finally back into perfectly was, yeah, when you get them on that balance beam and, and you have them on this slab or the, the deck wood, the, the synthetic deck uh, beam that you talked about, think about the intrinsic muscles of those feet and what you're doing at the actual local area with the plantar fascia, with those intrinsic foot muscles. So you kind of take this root, then global, then local um, approach. It just was, uh, th those were the things that I took out of it. I just loved it. Well, you know, the, the only competitive advantage we've had is uh, back in the late nineties, we started movement screening everybody. Um, in consulting situations, when they exited the clinic, very few people could handle a movement stream coming in the clinic. They're already broken, mm -hmm. but, but it was my, it was the way I checked my work, not their work. It's the way yes. that I tried to mitigate risk on exit. And then, you know, I'll be honest with you. We saw through professional athletics, strength coaches were more proactive on prevention than athletic trainers and therapists. I'm not throwing them under the mm. bus. If you've ever worked a, worked a sports medicine room of a franchise, you've got all you can do putting out fires, much less <laughs> playing with fire drills, you know. But, but that is the charge of the strength coach. And, and being able to go upstream of a problem, um, by the way, Dan and Chip Heath are writing partners, but Dan, I think, just wrote a book called Upstream, wrote it. And, and really, I think what we're uncovering and what you guys are, are excited about is any time in, in a, a uh, sport like basketball where development fundamentally is so very important, not being reactive to the problems that we see at, at the shoreline, we go upstream and figure out, all right, what could have prevented some of this? And I've had a chance to work with much younger athletes, you know, um, yeah. six to 12 years old. And we can do movement screens on them, but it's like herding cats. It's not necessary because most of them don't have big injuries. I'll line a lot of these kids up on the very first bleacher and have them jump off the bleacher, stick a landing, rock bottom. Some kids fall forward, some kids fall backward, but nobody's landing soft. They're landing because they don't know how to. What they think I'm doing is seeing how low they can go when they land. And they got to land in a full footprint, not up on their toes. And what I'm actually doing is making them own their deep squat. It takes about mm. two weeks to get everybody landing in that deep frog position. They all think they're great because they are. They're, they're at, between 6 and 12, they're plastic. After 12 – you're going to have a little more work on your hands as far as changing, changing that, that collagen. 
Um, but like I, like I said, and, and like you reiterated, collagen has cycles of stress and recovery it likes. And yep. collagen has patterns that it needs to be molded to. So you got to get your cycles right in your lifestyle, and then you got to get your patterns back that, that we all use. But after about two weeks, all those kids jumping off that bleacher, sticking that low landing, um, I go and then put a beanbag on their head. And I'm like, now stick the landing and don't drop the beanbag. <laughs> now, what I said to their system in week two is your mobility in your legs is great. Now organize your spine. Now, most people don't hear me saying that when I put a beanbag on your head, but try balancing that beanbag without organizing your spine. So the, the body likes you to sneak up on it with your exercises. I don't have to explain what we're doing. It, it becomes self-evident to, to the point we were making a little bit earlier. But the neat thing is I just fix landing mechanics and deep squats. So the more plastic your athletes are, the quicker you can go with this. But you've got to know what you're looking for. I already knew how many kids in that class couldn't deep squat. And by week three, all but two could. And the two that couldn't were going through a growth spurt and they weren't hurting. So I'm okay with that. So, you know, but, but what if I hadn't started there? I'd have had a lot of kids learning how to, to jump and turn and twist and do athletic movements yeah. on a base that could have easily been better with just a little bit more attention to detail. No doubt. Yeah, Gray, you bring up something that um, TD and I have talked a lot about, you know, kind of what, what goes up must come down and then what comes down, you know, you've got to be ready for that. So can you, you dive a little bit further into the, it, well, we you know, people would typically call it jump landing, but maybe reversing it again and coming at it from the other end of, of uh, landing dash jumping. Yeah, um, we... We do, in, in our fundamental capacity screen, a jump, which is a standing long jump. Now, I have a full appreciation of the vertical leap, and I know what a gold standard it has been in athletics for a while, but vertical jumping could be argued is more of a skill than horizontal jumping. Horizontal jumping has been part of our physical landscape since, uh, you know, the, we first lined people up at West Point and started doing physical testing on them. So most kids will express their first jump off of something. They climb onto something, jump off of something. So that's nature telling us, let's get our eccentrics right first, right? Let's get our landing <laughs> right. God forbid we jump and then don't know how to land. So what we do is called a dissected jump. And it completely tells us if this person is ready for jumping or power or not. Now, the first thing, I'll go back to something I heard Al Vermeil say when I was a young strength coach. A kid that cannot do a standing long jump, the length their body is tall, probably doesn't need to be on single leg plyometrics yet, meaning <laughs> their, their training age ain't there. Now, here's the funny thing. Most three-year-olds running around barefoot and moderately active can do a standing long jump that covers their body height. By the time we get into late elementary school and middle school, the majority of kids aren't doing that. So that tells us a, a, a three-year-old has wow. better body relative power than a kid going through their growth spurt. Now, they can easily get it back very quickly. But the mm. way we test that standing long jump is I want a full expression of your standing long jump. Swing your arms, leave your legs, land with your feet on the ground, don't fall forward, don't fall back. We got, your, we got your full expression. 
Now I'm going to do the exact same jump. I'm taking your arms out of it. Okay. You should demonstrate a jump that covers 80% of what you did with the arm contribution. Now, what happens if you cover 100%? Well, you don't know how to use your arms because they really didn't add much or take away much, <laughs> right? Right. But what if you, yeah, but what if, what if you do that and um, it's, it's the other way around? You barely cover 50%, right? So now we've got a way to separate the core, and then we do the same jump again off of the left but land on both and off of the right and land on both. So now I've taken your standing power expression, the one you've had since you were three years old, and I've looked at your upper body contribution, which should be about 20%. So if it's, if it's lower, um, if, it, if it, the contribution is higher than that, we need your legs to do more. And if it's lower than that, we need your core and arms to do more. And then we look at the left-right difference. And uh, we used to say a 10% difference was acceptable. We're down to about a 5% difference now. So mm. that's something that every coach, every PE teacher could do on top of a quick balance test or a movement screen is just that standing long jump dissected. And it really tells us how to give you a better vertical leap, which is the true thing that people are looking for, right? But, right. but what happens when people don't have a good vertical leap is we try to teach them how to jump instead of removing some of the fundamental reasons they can't. So we take that horizontal long jump, break it down, reassemble it, and say, yeah, now do it in any direction you want. Wow. Great. This has been absolutely phenomenal. So, so good. It's just been just, oh man, I, I've, I'm just going back in my head already on, on everything that you just dropped right there. There's one famous last question. This is the Basketball Strong podcast. The question is, what does it mean to you to be basketball strong? Uh, doing stuff in the fourth quarter that other people could barely do in the first quarter. It's, it's demonstrating that, that stamina. I, I go back to John Wooden uh, and, and some of his quotes saying, I, I rarely lose a whole lot of time scouting the other team. If mm. we are equally matched in skill, we will prevail with our physical condition. And so it's, it's right there under our noses. And, and let me be honest, very few of the people that, that most of your coaching listeners will, will train will make it to the highest level of basketball. Yep. But they will all learn how to mold their physical self into something they wish to be. That ability to be given the keys to transform and develop yourself is what a good coach needs to do because you can't guarantee the win, you can't guarantee the scholarship, you can't guarantee the pro career, but you can guarantee that I'm going to use this thing to help you become self-aware and manage yourself better. And so you know, why are we just exploiting their strengths? Why aren't we confronting their weakness in a kind way and saying, um, you know, here's how to fix your ankles. I, I will be checking in, but I expect you to handle this part of it. Um, because I expect you to independently show up ready and I'll take that to the next level. But if you're not showing up ready, there's, there's only so much we can do. And, it's not a cliche. Here are the five points where you could be more ready. 
and, and just go ahead. And, and, and I go back to one of my favorite guys in finance is Ray Dalio. And he runs Bridgewater mm. Investments with two things, radical transparency and algorithmic thinking, right? right. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the truth as kindly as I can, and then I'm going to put you up against the algorithm. And, and, you know, tell me again why you can't deep squat this week. Well, my dog ate my homework. Ah, I got it. <laughs> You know, so, so it's, it's, but it's a cool place to be as as a coach and a PE teacher to really help them take ownership of their physical obstacles. I mean, for, for the, you know, that's why Ryan Holiday's book, the, the obstacle is the way has been handed out by a lot of coaches and given to pro athletes, because whether it's your next injury or your next loss that you're trying to overcome, let that obstacle teach you. And if you're not, if you're not seeing I could have been better prepared in that lesson. You're probably missing it because they're that's what coaches are supposed to do is 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 show you where you could be better prepared. And basketball coaches, just like all other coaches, are gonna have to start speaking movement and it's not that hard. You don't have to get a biomechanics degree or anything, but there are fundamental movements that we get in growth and development, and it's never okay to lose them. And deep squats, lunges, turns, twists, standing on one foot, push, pull, that's them. Powerful, powerful. Nobody, nobody knows basketball strong any better than you, Gray. This was so, so special. And thank you so much. Can you talk to listeners about where they can find you, where they can learn about all the great stuff you're doing and what's coming on the horizon? Uh, every class we teach uh, is on functionalmovement.com. Uh, we teach uh, you know, movement screening workshops. Uh, usually strength coaches and sport coaches go there. For our clinicians working with athletes, they go to our, our clinical workshops, which are the, the selective functional movement assessment, more of an orthopedic exam. We've added a, a capacity screen there, too. Um, back in 2001, I started writing a book called Athletic Body and Balance, and I think by 2003, uh, it was on the shelf, and you can still get it at Amazon today. And a lot of the stuff we were talking about, the chops, the lifts, it's, it's all in there, the med ball passes, yeah. um, some of the... Uh, old physical agility test. And that was written directly to the athlete and, and the coach. The, so there's a lot of do it yourself in there. And there's even a small screen in the front of the book. Don't be surprised if a lot of the things in that book don't show up as an app pretty soon, because we're, we're leaning that way. The books of the future are going to be on your tablet and on your phone. And, and we want to get the information out. And uh, I got a book that's going to be out in about a month called the business of movement. And it's really how to embrace how we can all lock arms on these risk factors a little bit better because to me your health is your current state of readiness your wellness is your future state of readiness and your fitness is your state of capacity how much can Mm. you do but most of the time when i'm asked a fitness question i have to ask a functional question back because they're 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 trying to assign loads and scale to a problem that is not at a competent level of, of, of movement yet. So in this business of movement, we show people how to actually manage the risk factors as part of your service. I'm not just here to teach you basketball. I'm here to make you more physically dominant. I'm not just here to rehab your knee. I'm here to make sure I never see you in here for this again. And when we start all talking like that, we're not going to have to 
spend as much money on advertisement as we currently do because people will start to distinguish the difference between the coaches and clinicians and trainers that all work in upstream. And you're not going to get paid more to work upstream. You're just going to get a better reputation and that's going to get you paid more. We can make kids functional and the whole time they're getting that way, they'll be having fun doing it. I, I right. voluntarily became a PE teacher for three years prior to COVID. I just showed up every Thursday. I, I built obstacle courses with perform better equipment. Uh, oh, and I wow. didn't teach exercises. I had no lesson plan. I just scaled the obstacles with balance beams and boxes and balls and stuff like that. But at the beginning and end of the school year, we did movement screen and balance screen the kids. And my wife and I were, were volunteer PE teachers and we posted better movement screens and better balance scores in the kids never knew they got better at anything. They just got better at physical obstacles. And so, you know, we have fun with our work. We, we take our work seriously. We don't take yep. ourselves seriously. And, and I, I, I know your creative brain is already going. You can see, especially coming up through youth, how fun we can make some of these functional drills and, totally. and competitive stations. And we can see the transferable physical skill come out of the other side. So, yes. you know, it's not go in the weight room and get ready for basketball. It's I'm going to meet you right where we are. There's, there's plenty of physical conditioning on this floor and there's a little bit of supplementary work, but I'm not going to ask you to do it if I can't show you why we're doing it and what's going to change if we do. Keep chipping away, my brother. This was outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong.